2006, November 2nd. Today is Lecture 30, The Moon, which will begin in just a moment. The last couple days we've been talking about the Earth as a planet. We've talked about the Earth's interior. We've talked about the Earth's atmosphere. And I've, I've really glossed over a lot of material fairly quickly, but hitting the key highlights. And if any lessons sort of stick from this, and what lessons we want to carry forward as we begin to explore the solar system starting on Monday, is that the Earth's surface, the Earth's interior, and the Earth's atmosphere are not just static things. They're very complex systems. They have a past, they have an evolution into the present, and they will have a future evolution as well. They will change over time. The atmosphere is very dynamic. We see that the atmospheric composition has changed over time. We see the atmospheric composition is even changing as we watch. In fact, some of the things human beings are doing is, in fact, changing and altering the, the composition of the atmosphere. We don't know what the impact of that's going to be. Could be bad, could be really bad, could be who knows. So that's part of why there's a lot of political and scientific argument going on about that. The Earth is extremely dynamic. The surface is very young. We don't see a lot. A lot of the geologic features have been strongly affected by wind erosion, by repaving from volcanism, by repaving of the entire surface. It's hard to find the oldest rocks on Earth. Well, now we want to look at a world that couldn't be more different than the Earth. And we don't have to go very far to do it by only going to our nearest neighbor in space, the Moon. We're going to see a world without an atmosphere and without a dynamic interior. And we're going to see that its appearance and some of its properties are very different because of that. And we're very lucky in many ways because the moon is so close and is so, in many ways, so different from the Earth because we represent between the Earth and the moon two of the extremes of bodies we see throughout the solar system. Not exactly the extremes. They're icy bodies of the outer solar system we can't get close to yet. But the differences of processes that occur on the surface are manifest throughout the solar system for moon-like things and Earth-like things, if you will. Now, it's not, we're not going to quite use that kind of division, but a lot of the basic principles are there. And we're fortunate that the moon is close enough we've actually been able to sample rocks directly. The moon is the only other place human beings have visited directly. So today we're going to talk about the moon. The key idea is, is we want to first introduce the surface of the moon. It's got old, heavily cratered highlands and a much younger, darker Maria region, the so-called seas. And on the surface of the moon is a material, a thick regolith, as it's called, of pulverized rock. This idea of a regolith is a common geologic feature we're going to see throughout the solar system on solid surfaces. We're going to say a little bit about the interior of the moon. We actually did put seismographs down on the moon during various moon landings, both robotic and left behind by astronauts. It's pretty clear that the moon has a crust and a mantle, but it appears, and this is still a controversial point, that it has no core in the middle. That's a big question of why it doesn't have that. And there's some people who argue it might, in fact, have a core. So it's, it's still a little up in the air. Our knowledge isn't perfect yet. But another clue to what's going on in the interior is the moon has no magnetic field. But there's some interesting things we learned from some of the moon rocks we brought back that maybe once in the past it did. And finally, we want to end the lecture by saying something about the origin of the moon. Where did the moon come from? What, are, what can we read in some of the moon's properties that quite surprisingly lets us actually piece together what the origin of the moon may have been many billions of years ago? So today we're going to talk about our nearest neighbor in space, a world very different from the Earth, less dynamic, the moon. Well, we've seen this picture of the moon before. I'll simply lay this out um, here. The moon has a near side because the moon rotates at exactly the same rate in round numbers that it orbits. So it always keeps one face to the Earth. We call the side that always faces the Earth the near side. And the opposite side we never see, the far side. 
We can see it, however, with spacecraft. This is a beautiful picture on the right here, which was taken by the Galileo spacecraft, which passed by the moon on its way out to Jupiter. We see the differences of terrain here on the moon are these light areas, which we're going to refer to as the highlands, and these dark areas that are the maria. And of course, the surface is extremely heavily cratered. It's pocked and pit pitted all over with these deep impact craters. If I take the moon now and simply unstretch it and lay it out into one of those nice flat projection maps, much like we did with the Earth yesterday, this really shows you what the lunar terrain looks like. Most of it is highlands. A lot of the highlands are actually on the far side as it happens, and the largest maria happen to be on the near side. There's a couple of large dark regions. These are the seas. You can see that they're fairly darker than the, the highlands, and they have fewer craters, whereas here you see quite a number of craters in the highlands. The other thing you can notice is some of the craters in the moon are extremely large. You'll notice, for example, this particular crater here. This is actually halfway between a crater and a mare. It's called the Mare Orientalis. It's an example of an impact basin. You can actually see it rippling as it moves outward. The impact here was so big, it actually rippled the crust on its way out. And you can see a couple of other very old shadows of very large impact basins elsewhere on the moon. So if you want to divide up the terrain of the moon, it's a basic two-fold division. We refer to the cratered highlands. It actually does have a higher altitude than sort of the mean figure of the moon. And then the darker maria. Maria comes from the Latin word mare for seas. So it's often referred to as the seas. And then there's a third feature, again, which I've pointed out, are these so-called impact basins, the most dramatic of which is the Mare Orientalis, but you can see shadows of other large impact basins as well. These are features on the surface of the moon that were formed by massive asteroidal size impacts sometime deep in the moon's past. Let's look at each of these terrain features in order and look at what their basic properties are and what we can learn about them. The first of these is the Maria. These are actually the most obvious terrain features on the moon. When you look up at the moon, these are the dark regions that you see, sort of that dark and light shadow thing going on. They are, they are a very small fraction of the surface. Only about 16% of the total surface of the moon is covered by the Maria. If you look at the surface, and this is a beautiful picture taken from uh, the command module of one of the Apollo spacecraft. I forget which one it was. Um, you notice that there's sort of wide plains. There's only little teeny tiny craters pocked around with an occasional very large crater. So we don't see really super heavy craters. In fact, very few of these craters overlap. They all seem to be fairly widely separated and spaced out. This is going to turn out to be something very important to us as we look in the rest of the solar system. Cratering leaving its marks on surfaces of planets like the moon that don't have atmospheres leaves a record of when the last thing was hit. If it's a young surface, you're going to have widely separated tiny craters. An older surface is going to be just completely covered with overlapping large craters. So the fact that we see very few impact craters in the Maria, they're spread out and they're tiny, is going to tell us that this is a younger surface, historically speaking. Now the older impact craters, of which there's a very nice example in the foreground of this picture down here towards the bottom of the screen, you see that the impact craters are partially filled in. They don't have the deep bowl appearance that some of the younger craters have, but they're filled in like someone's puddled some lava in. And in fact, it's probably exactly what's happened. These things have actually filled themselves in over time. The other clue that we have that this is a very, very young surface is not only the ages of the rocks that have been brought back from the Maria by both the, the Apollo astronauts and the Lunacod missions, but their content is very, very rich in iron. 
This is very different than the typical moon rock you would pick up in the highlands, which are going to be very rich in silicates. So to review what the clues are, the mari are dark. They cover a small fraction, 16% of the surface. It's a younger surface, and we can tell that because it has fewer impact craters spread over its area, very, very few overlapping craters. The oldest, biggest impact craters are filled in by lava flows, and the rocks seem to be very high. They're basalts. They're very, very rich in iron, which is telling you its material has been brought up from the deep interior. Now, the contrast are the lunar highlands. These are the lighter colored regions of the moon. They cover the other 84% of the surface. They're very, very heavily cratered. Here's an example of a section of the, of the lunar highlands. You can see it has many large, deep scoop craters. These deep scoop craters are not filled in except for the very, very largest ones. And all the craters just overlap each other. You can see just how heavily cratered and pummeled the surface is. It's absolutely been beaten up over the course of, of lunar history. A lot of, the, of overlapping craters. You also end up with very high mountains. You can see this better towards the edge of this photograph where you're starting to look over the lunar rim. And you can see how rough and rugged this terrain looks like. It's actually very, very torn up. And in between the high mountains, of course, are going to be very, very deep valleys. So it's quite a difference where the mare were kind of like lowland plains with a few craters. The highlands are mountains and valleys, overlapping craters, very, very old, very, very beat up surface. This old surface here is shown by the very, very high density of impact craters. So we have an immediate way to tell the age of a surface by looking at any surface within the solar system that hasn't had processes like on the Earth that repaves it or erodes it down. You simply look at the density of cratering. If you see a very, very smooth surface, you've got a good chance that that surface is relatively young. If you see a very, very heavily cratered, beat-up surface, you get an idea that that surface is very, very old. Now we know a great deal about the content of moon rocks because we brought back around 382 kilos of samples over the course of a series of missions between 1969 and 1976. The United States sent um, six manned missions to the moon. The seventh, Apollo 13, never made it, had to return in flight. But Apollos 11 through 17 landed two astronauts on the surface of the moon. In total, 12 human beings have visited the surface. One of them only, Jack Schmidt, um, Apollo 17, was actually a trained geologist. The rest were well, various military officers and pilots who got a very quick training in geology. The missions visited the Maria and the Highlands, and they brought back a number of rock samples. The geology training was to help them select on the ground what rocks to bring back. The Soviet Union had a manned program, but never managed to bring any, actually finish it. They never actually got to the point where they sent people to the moon. But they did send three robotic missions. These were the so-called Luna missions, 1970, 72, and 76. They had robotic capsules that were loaded up with rocks, and then the capsule was sent back to the Earth. It was only after the fall of the Soviet Union in the late 1980s that the Soviet moon rocks actually began to enter into the group of, of samples from the moon that people around the world could study. This, this map here, this is showing the near side of the moon. All of the lunar landing missions were to the near side. It kind of makes sense because if you're on the near side, you can be in direct radio communication with the Earth. If you're on the far side, you can't send radio beams through the surface, through the body of the moon. So it, the only way we could ever put a mission on the far side of the moon is to have like communication satellites in orbit around. So these are the various missions here. The A's mark the Apollo missions sent by the United States, and the L's mark the Luna missions. The three sample return missions from the Soviets were Luna 16, 20, and 24. Most of the missions were to the Maria. 
Most of them ended up in the Maria. Only Apollo 16 ended up in the Descartes Highlands of the Lunar Highlands. So we know a fair amount about the Maria and some of the deep transition areas, but only from Apollo 16 and just a small section from Luna 20 do we actually have any rocks from the highlands. The highlands are going to be a much more difficult place to land. It's more jumbled terrain. So people were a little bit uh, concerned about that. There were going to be subsequent missions. There was supposed to be Apollo 18, 19, and 20 that were canceled by Congress. And so they never completed the entire, um, it was supposed to be, I think it was 10 or 12 missions to the moon, never were completed. A lot of those later missions were being targeted to the highlands. So it's another reason why people would like to go back to the moon, other than, you know, pure politics and let's plant the American flag or something on the moon, is we've got a lot of work done, but there's a tremendous amount of work remaining to be done. And there's only so much you can really do with robotic spacecraft. At some point, you really want a geologist's eyes there on the moon to spot that really odd rock that just looks funny. You can't teach a robot how to say, that looks funny. Because sometimes the thing that looks funny is the real big discovery. These are examples of what these moon rocks look like. I've shown the three major types of moon rock that were returned. Up in the upper left is an example of a basalt. This is an iron-rich lava, solidified lava. Um, in fact, it looks an awful lot like an earth lava. To a first approximation, it is, but there's an important difference, as we'll see. It's absolutely missing water. It's completely bone dry. The other type of, of moon rock that's fairly common, especially in the highlands, is a type of rock called a breccia. It's an Italian word. Basically, it looks kind of like a chunk of concrete. It looks like something that's been glommed together. A breccia is what's known as an impact melt. It's basically a lot of different pieces that have been all crushed together as a result of an impact. So breccias are very common. They show signs of basically being assembled by pushing a bunch of stuff together. They're big agglomerates. And finally, you get this beautiful thing called an anorthosite. This is a very nice piece of rock that's found. Very rare on the moon, but actually is very important geologically because it's one of those nice pieces that bridges the gap between the different sources of rock on the moon. And the anorthosite was the one that was the big prize. Um, people were arguing endlessly before the Apollo missions whether anorthosites were actually found on the moon. And one of the astronauts, and I'm blanking on who, which one it was, actually spotted this one and said, hey, that looks like that anorthosite that geologist who was training us telling about and grabbed it. And it was tremendously exciting because people before that were saying there was no way there were anorthosites on the moon. But it was a geologist, the, the geology trained astronaut said, oh, look, it's another reason why, there really is a reason why you send people out there and not robots. Here's a a good look at what the lunar surface looks like. The moon is a very dark place. You know, you sort of, moon seems bright in the sky, but it's really only about 7% reflective of sunlight. It really is very, very dark. There's this large sort of dusty stuff that sits between the rocks, and even the rocks are fairly dark. Here's a, a color bar, which is part of the uh, photographic system brought in by the astronauts. And you can just see the, the dark planes. In fact, the place was, the astronauts came back just, just filthy. They were covered with this fine pulverized dark powder. That fine dark powder actually has a name. It's called regolith. Probably one of the most famous lunar photographs, of course, I've shown up in the upper right. That's Neil Armstrong's first footprint on the moon. The first thing you notice about it is it looks almost like what you would see as an impression almost into fine, almost flower-like sand. This is an example of what the regolith is like. It's a layer of dust and deeply fragmented rock, which pretty much covers the entire surface. Where the regolith comes from, it's basically repeated meteoritic impacts. The moon's surface has just been pummeled over and over and over and again through its history. And it just pulverizes, literally powders the rock. It covers the surface not only of the moon, but in fact we found it 
either from its proper remote sensing of its properties or directly on the surfaces of nearly every airless world, moon and asteroid, in the inner part of the solar system. The outer part of the solar system regolith is going to be different because of the presence of ices, but in the inner solar system you don't get ices. So if you go out to an asteroid, you'll also find its surfaces are really beat up, pulverized and pummeled into this fine regolith. Now, if we look at the lunar regolith, which we've actually brought back samples, in fact, the astronauts couldn't help but bring back samples. Their suits were covered with the junk when they got back in the lander. Is It's consisting primarily of single mineral grains and rock fragments. So this is about as far as you can grind down a rock when you get down to the individual crystals that make up the rock amalgam. The other thing you see is you see a lot of impact breaches. These are these heat-fused grains and rocks that I showed the picture of just before that shows the signs that the formation of these things was not like lava flow or something else. These are not produced by erosion processes. These are produced by impact heating. Impact heating, melting, and fusion. If you make estimates of how thick the regolith is, in the maria, it's between 2 and 8 kilometers thick. Now, that isn't to say that it's powdery all the way 2 kilometers down. It's only just powdery like this, just on the very surface, because, of course, it settles down and it compacts. In the Maria, however, there are areas where the regolith, basically this mixed up pulverized grains and impact breccias, could extend as much as 15 kilometers below the lunar surface. So what you're seeing is essentially the lunar surface has been plowed up, churned up, and pulverized repeatedly over the course of its history by the action of meteors. This is very different than what we saw on the Earth. On the Earth, we saw the continual repaving of the surface due to tectonic activity. Volcanoes belching up lava and building new land, or maybe places where you had divergent boundaries between two plates pulling apart and lava filling in, and then older crust being subducted down into the, into the mantle in the places where plates are grinding together and crashing together. On the moon, the formation of the terrain is primarily shaped by meteoritic impacts, and we see all of the signs of meteoritic impacts. The regolith is a good sign of an impact-shaped surface. It's plowed up by a continual meteoritic impact. We're going to be looking for that elsewhere in the solar system. When we go to a planetary surface, be it the Mars, Venus, Mercury, or asteroids, various solid surfaces, one of the first questions we ask ourselves is what formed that surface? Has this been formed by geologic tectonic type processes, volcanic type processes, or have they been formed by impact processes? Well, that makes a nice lead into the question of lunar history. We actually can read the history of the moon. It's a little different than the way we read the history of the Earth. We don't play the, play the game with strata because we don't have tectonic processes going on like we do on Earth, but we can read lunar history in the impact history that's written on its face with impact craters. The maria turn out to be much younger surfaces. We can date the moon rocks that come back from the maria. They typically have ages between 3.1 and 3.8 billion years. So you can see that young is kind of, kind of uh, relative here. The youngest surfaces on the Earth are brand new. The typical terrain you see like uh, the Rocky Mountains are 60 million years old. The youngest surfaces we see on the moon are a little over 3 billion years old. So the moon's formation history, the major geologic changes, if you will, stopped about 3 billion years ago, whereas on the Earth they've been ongoing. And in fact, the other clue is not only the ages of the rocks, but we could tell it from the fact it's lightly cratered. And the idea is that the maria formed after an initial imp 
epoch in the solar system when there was tremendously heavy bombardment of all the bodies of the inner solar system. The maria represent the last few big hits at the end of that epoch of heavy bombardment. Now the Earth was subject to heavy bombardment as well, but the Earth has a dynamic surface and almost all of those impact craters have been erased by the tectonic processes that have occurred in the subsequent three billion years since the end of the epoch of heavy bombardment. So one of the things we're going to go looking for as we go out in the rest of the solar system is signs of surfaces that bear the marks of the epoch of heavy bombardment. The highlands, by comparison, are a lot older, between 3.8 and 4 billion years old on average. Some of the material gets up as old as 4.3 billion years old, and it's extremely heavily cratered, as we've seen. Lots of big, overlapping craters. The indication from moon rocks that have been brought back from the highlands is that the oldest rocks are about 4.3 billion years old. That's not as old as some of the oldest meteoritic rocks. Remember, the meteoritic rocks are the oldest rocks in the solar system. They're the leftover construction debris of the entire solar system, and they give us our 4.5 plus or minus 0.1 billion year age for the, for the Earth and the solar system. What this is pretty much telling you is that because you go back to the oldest rock and it's 4.3 billion years pretty consistently, that tells you that in that 200 million year period before that, the moon was largely molten. So even after 200 million years after its approximate formation, the moon was still molten, which is an interesting clue to what's going on in, it, in its formation history. So again, we can read the history by looking at the cratering record, because there has been no volcanism or tectonism on the surface of the moon to erase old craters, and there's no atmosphere, so there's no weathering, there's no erosion, there's no water or wind erosion that can wipe out the craters like they get wiped out on Earth. And so we can see, if you will, recorded on the pockmarked surface the history of those terrains. Again, we'll take a little quicker look at the maria here. These are the youngest lunar terrains. I've drawn an outline in red on this picture of the near side of the moon, the maria. They're very, very dark because they're made up of dark rocks which are very rich in iron and very, very rich in magnesium. They look superficially, in fact, I've, I've seen, if you go to the, um, for example, the Smithsonian and other muse NASA museums have fairly large samples of moon rock available to see, not to touch, but to see. A moon basalt looks an awful lot like an earth basalt, but when you chemically analyze it, there's one really important difference. You do not see any hydrated water, any water at all, and you don't see any hydrated minerals. A hydrated mineral is a mineral that forms in the presence of water. For example, a mineral that might form as you know, in water, dissolved in water solution, and as the water evaporates away, it precipitates out a crystal. Salts are a very good example of hydrated minerals, or minerals that contain water inside of them. The other thing that's really puzzling about the basalts is they have 10 times the titanium content of earth rocks. No one knows what that's all about. They just have just a huge amount of titanium as another heavy metal. So what we know about the moon rocks is that while they look like iron and magnesium-rich lavas, they did not form in the presence of water. The formation process occurred in a region that was completely bone dry. That's utterly unlike what we find in the Earth. And in fact, in the interior of the Earth, we have new rock being brought up from the deep interior, like magma pools coming up in volcanoes. Even though volcanoes on Earth belch out basaltic lavas, they also belt out, belch out huge amounts of steam. And if you pull apart those lavas, they've got a lot of dissolved water in them. That's simply not the case on the moon. That's an important clue as to what's going on. The magma flows 
in this case, are not coming from tectonism. We're not talking about magma pools coming up and forming hot spots like on the, on the Earth because we don't see any volcanoes. We don't see any shield volcanoes. We see nothing that looks like a little cinder cone on the moon. Every structure on the moon is formed by impact cratering or the aftermath of that cratering. What's really causing these lava flows is when you get a really big asteroid impact, it literally busted open the crust while the interior of the moon was still molten, and then molten material oozed up through the basically the hole punched in the crust by that asteroid. You're only going to get asteroid impacts. You're only going to have a couple of really big rocks running around and hitting you a lot back in the days when there was still a lot of debris around in the solar system left over from formation. And that's why we see ages of 3.1 to 3.8 billion years. But once that impact epoch lets off, there's no more heavy impacts, for the most part, that are capable of producing these big lava flows. And so we stop seeing any younger rock. Remember that the age of a rock is the time since it's solidified out of a molten state. So this is telling us that even though this was a very dynamic process of impact that formed these surfaces, it stopped 3 billion years ago. The other important clues is it happened in the near absence of water, which is different than we'd expect if it was made out of the same stuff as the Earth, and it has a higher titanium content, which is also an interesting clue. Here's a beautiful picture of Apollo 17 in the Taurus Littrow Valley, um, which is near the edges of one of these mari, and you can see the dark maria, the smooth areas, a few rock outcroppings here, and this is astronaut uh, Jack Schmidt standing there. Cratered highlands, on the other hand, this is the oldest lunar terrain. If you wanted to find the oldest moon rocks, you'd go straight to the highlands. Most of the rock that you find up there is not basaltic lava. It's these impact uh, breccias. It's basically these heavily pulverized, impact pulverized rocks. Everything you see in the highlands is older than the oldest rocks in the maria. Where the maria were about 3 to 3.8 billion years, the, most of the, of the rock in the highlands are 3.8 and above. Around 4 billion years is a typical age. The oldest rocks get up to 4.3 billion years ago. This appears to mark the end of a very intense period of bombardment at the very beginning of lunar history. And it started about, that's a typo, it should be 4.5 billion years ago. It's at 4.6. Um, a very, very intense period of bombardment at the very beginning of lunar history is what really formed the highlands. And it was only a few handfuls of impacts later, sort of residual last-minute impacts, that formed the maria somewhat later at the end of that epoch. Now, the other thing about the lunar highlands is they also have some very unusual mineral content. And the idea of what, what the interpretation of that unusual mineral, mineral content is that the moon was not solidified early on. The moon took a while to get solid. In fact, it took about 200 million years after its nominal formation, we think, about 4.35 billion years ago. So that's a real head-scratcher. Maybe the moon didn't form exactly 4.5 billion years ago, or something happened to it sometime between its formation with the rest of the solar system and 4.3 billion years ago that literally melted the entire body of the moon because we just don't find any rocks older. But there's no sign of tectonism, there's no sign of volcanism, there's no sign of the kind of processes that give us young rocks on the Earth. So something happened. Something crazy happened to the moon back about 4.3 billion years ago after the initial formation of most of its body. It's an important clue as to what we think is going on in the formation history of the moon. Here's a, a lovely picture of the, 
um, the moon right down on the ground there. At the, and this is in the Descartes Highlands. This is the site of, of Apollo 16, the lunar rover there. This was taken by one of the astronauts looking back at the landing site. You can see that there's, again, it has a regolith on it. You can see the tracks from the rover and the astronauts running around down in there, um, forming in that powder-like, breccia, uh, powder-like regolith. But you can also see it's fairly heavily cratered. They're, in fact, on the, on the edge of a fairly large set of rolling hills. You'll notice that the, the mountains here are all pretty smooth. They don't have, they're, not, they're not jagged. Um, if you go into some old science books, especially science books that date from before the lunar landings of the first robotic spacecraft to go up to the moon, or, or even if you watch, for example, dig up an old DVD of uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and look at the moon sequences, they show really sharp, scarp craters. They show really jagged mountains and stuff because people thought, oh, well, the mountains will be jagged because there's no erosion. Well, there is a form of erosion. It's continual meteoritic bombardment slowly sands down any of the sharp edges. So one of the things you get is even though the moon's surface is extremely old, there is a process which has been taking the jaggies off. And what takes the jaggies off is it's continually getting sand blasted by micrometeorite hits over the course. You know, individually, that's not going to make a big deal. But if you've got three billion years to three, four billion years to do it, it adds up. What do we know about the interior of the moon? That's the surface. What do we know about the inside of the moon? Well, it turns out we actually know quite a bit. Not as much as we'd like, but quite a bit. Part of that is because every one of the lunar landers that we've set up there has had a seismographic station on board. We knew right away the seismographs, certainly on Earth, give us a lot of information about the Earth's interior. The best way to learn about the lunar interior is to set up seismograph stations. Now, you might think for a second, but why would you bother? Because the moon is old, cold, and dead, doesn't have any tectonic activity. Tectonic activity on the Earth is fractures in the crust, when, where the plates rub together. Why would we bother? Well, yeah, you're right. It is tectonically inactive, but meteors hit it. Every now and then a meteor hits the surface of the moon, and when it does that, you get a sudden deposition of energy, and it rattles the moon. And you can read the seismic waves from those meteoritic impacts rattling their way through the moon. And the first piece of information that comes out of that is there is no liquid interior. Everywhere you look on the moon, you see both S waves and P waves propagate in all directions. Remember, P waves were the pressure waves, the in and out. And they pass through rock and they pass through fluids. But shear waves, S waves, the ones that go like this, go through rock just fine, but in molten material, they damp. They get, they get, they get mushed down. In the moon, there's no evidence anywhere of any liquid molten interior. So the moon is old, cold, and solidified. The best picture people have come up with is that the outer crust of the moon varies between about 10 to 100 kilometers thick. It's thinnest in the maria, thickest in the deepest part of the highlands. Inside of that is a solid mantle, which is probably about 90% of the volume of of the moon. It's also the origin of moonquakes. Now, now, wait a minute. You said there was no tectonic activity. You're right. There isn't. But there are tides, body tides of the moon being raised by the Earth. Those body tides raise stresses inside the mantle, and every now and then those stresses pull enough and it lets loose some rock. When the stresses let loose, you get a little mini moonquake, and the seismographs pick them up, and they see the origin is deep in the interior. That surprised some people and not others. So one of the things we learned from the seismograph stations is where those quakes occurred. People were expecting primarily to see surface impacts. In fact, we can see occasional 
small, tiny releases of stresses from the continuous squeezing and pulling of the tides. Because remember, the moon is on an elliptical orbit. The tides are greatest when it's at apogee, or, sorry, greatest at perigee when it's close to the Earth, and least at apogee when it's furthest from the Earth. And so the change in the strength of the tides can release energy as moonquakes. Now the controversy on the interior of the moon is whether or not it has an iron core. The seismographic data is not detailed enough to be able to distinguish whether there's a solid iron core in the center or not. What you'd be looking for is the sign that the waves which were going through rock suddenly started going through solid iron. That would change the wave speed, it would change some of the details of how the seismic waves propagate through the moon. The data just aren't good enough. Some people argue there's some evidence for an ancient magnetic field on the moon which would argue for an iron core, other people not. In fact, that's the whole question right now. Is there a lunar core? Here's an answer question. Here's a reason for going back to the moon. The moon does not have a global magnetic field. The satellites we've sent there, the magnetometers on board the Apollo and Luna spacecraft do not record any magnetism from the moon at all. Quite different from the strong geomagnetic field of the Earth. This implies that it doesn't have a geodynamo. It's another piece of evidence that does not have a molten interior with those metallic currents going on, like, for example, in the Earth's outer core, the outer iron nickel core, there's convection currents giving rise to the geodynamo. Nothing like that goes on the moon. It's absolutely absent magnetic field. But that's a different question. Did it have a molten core with convection and a dynamo in the distant past? Well, there's a hint that it might have. Some of the rocks brought back from the moon have frozen in magnetic fields. These are referred to as fossil magnetic fields. If you form a rock in the presence of a strong magnetic field, as that rock solidifies, it locks in and traps some of that magnetic field, and it stays as a residual self-magnetism in the solid rock. So some of the rocks brought back have stronger magnetic fields than you would expect, stronger than anything we measure in the moon right now. So this tells us they cooled in the presence of a strong magnetic field, but most of those rocks are three, four billion years old. So while the conclusion we reach from that is, while the moon does not have a magnetic field now, because we can find sort of between three and a half and four billion year old rocks on the moon that have a fossil magnetic field, and we conclude that they must have formed in the presence of a magnetic field, that suggests that even though the moon doesn't have a magnetic field now, it may have had one back in the distant past. And the distant past is up around three and a half, four billion years ago when the interior of the moon was not yet fully solidified. Now, if it's not yet fully solidified and there's a liquid metallic center that has convection, you can get a dynamo, and that dynamo will persist until the moon's interior cools off to the point that the dynamo shuts down, the magnetic field simply collapses and goes away. And then a subsequently formed moon rocks would form in the absence of a magnetic field. So for example, an impact from a late bombardment around three billion years ago, form a rock on the maria, you get molten material, but it's in the absence of a magnetic field, it solidifies, there's no magnetic field frozen in. So it's a tantalizing clue and people argue about this endlessly. And the current conclusion is the moon does not have a magnetic field now, but it did have one possibly in the distant past. Which brings us to the final question we have today. Where did the moon come from? That sounds like a silly question. It's there, obviously. Didn't it form there? Maybe not. 
how can we even begin to answer this question? The oldest thing, the youngest things on the moon are around three billion years old. So how can we even hope to answer the question of what the history of the moon is? It's had no history or very little history since the last three billion years. But there are some clues. There are some important clues. And the clues look like as follows. The first thing is you look at the content of rock. I said there were iron and magnesium rich basalts. But if you look in detail at the chemical composition of those basalts, the iron content is less than the iron content of analogous earth basalts. The other thing in those basalts that I mentioned before is that there's no water. There's not even water in the shadows on the moon. Furthermore, the rocks themselves show signs of having formed in the absence of water. And there are no other compounds called generically volatiles. A volatile is something like carbon dioxide or anything that can form an ice which can flash into a gas. Like silicates is not a volatile because it's a, it's a rock. Right? It goes from liquid to solid, rock. Ices, on the other hand, water ice, is volatile because you take water ice, it's pretty solid, stick it out in the sun and poof, flashes out into vapor and liquid. The moon simply lacks any signs of either those water and volatiles now or sign of any minerals that formed in the presence of water or minerals or, or, or volatiles. Now, what's really odd is that moon rocks don't resemble surface rocks on the Earth, but with a few exceptions, they most resemble in composition mantle rocks, fresh lavas being belched up, for example, from volcanoes. The difference is they don't have any water and their iron content's lower, but everything else looks more like rock from the deep interior of the Earth, not rock from the Earth's surface, not like the stuff that floated to the top after differentiation. Finally, there's another piece, a very important piece, is the detailed abundances of isotopes of oxygen found in brought, moon rocks brought back are absolutely identical to the isotope ratios found in Earth, oxygen isotope ratios found in Earth rocks. Meteors, on the other hand, have a completely different mix of oxygen isotopes. Now that's a red flag. If you have exactly the right mix of isotopes, that's one of the ways you can say, you know, these rock came from the same place. Whereas the meteors have a different oxygen ratio. They've got a shared history, chemical history somewhere in there. But they don't have enough iron and they're lacking water. And they look like stuff from inside the Earth not the surface. Now, four various formation models have been proposed to explain where the moon came from. Every single one of those models is testable, but they have to explain all of these properties of the moon rocks that have been returned from Earth, returned to Earth. So let's look at some of those in, 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 de in a little bit in detail. The first of these is what you would call the obvious theory, co-formation. The Earth and the moon orbit each other, they formed in the same place out of the same raw materials as, the, as, as each other, which would pretty much explain why the moon is next to us, why the gross composition is the same, but it does not explain the lack of iron in the surface, nor does it explain the lack of water and other volatiles in the surface. Because if it formed the same as the Earth, it should show exactly the same proportions of the Earth and everything. Okay with the oxygen isotopes, okay with the approximate mantle composition, but the iron content is way too far off and the complete and utter lack of water and hydrated minerals just doesn't match, doesn't work. Well, let's then take the assumption that it formed from similar nearby material, 
but formed in a separate place with slightly different local chemistry, and then through a process of gravitational capture, the moon was captured by the much more massive and stronger gravitational field of the Earth. So we want to actually pose it that the moon was captured by the Earth's strong gravitational field. Well, this can't explain the lack of iron in volatiles or the identical isotope ratios, because you would have to contrive it so that it formed near the Earth, but from a little pocket of slightly different stuff that just happened to have exactly the same oxygen isotope ratios. That's really hard to contrive. It also turns out that capturing something gravitationally is really, really hard to do. It's really hard to get rid of orbital energy through the action of tides and the action of gravity. You can do it, but everything's got to be just right. Now, just because everything's got to be just right isn't a theory killer, but it makes you nervous, right? You've got to contrive everything so it's just all those little just-so stories. It doesn't make you feel really warm and fuzzy about the capture theory. So, again, the idea of a theory, remember, is an attempt to explain observed phenomena. We've got a couple of obvious ideas about where the moon could come from. We formed with us, or maybe it formed nearby and we captured it through a process of gravitational capture. There's a lot of attractive features about these, but there are key observations brought back from the moon rocks that just don't match. And if they just don't match, that means you've got to keep looking. So these were the, these were the two theories when I, was a, when I was a kid, before the moon landings. They would pretty much tell you it was either co-formation or capture, because no one knew the chemical composition of moon rocks. Once those moon rocks came back, these two theories suddenly fell into tremendous disfavor. They didn't work. They were inconsistent with the data. This led to a couple of other ideas. Fission was actually an idea which was, which was common before the moon landings. The idea was that the Earth, when it first formed, was spinning really rapidly. The proto-Earth was just whipping around. Think about a water balloon. When you spin up a water balloon faster and faster and faster, it distorts and kind of bulges. If you spin it up real fast, eventually it bulges to the point the balloon busts and you soak yourself. The same thing is true of any kind of rotating fluid body. There is a maximum spin rate beyond which you get fission. You basically get the thing flies off a blob of gunk. So the idea was that the proto-Earth was spinning really fast and the moon was spun off out of that fat, rapidly spinning Earth. The angular momentum of the rapidly spinning proto-Earth got given to the moon, went into the moon's orbital angular momentum, and the actual blob of the Earth now slowed down to the point that it was no longer a distorted water balloon of molten crap. Now this seems to do a pretty good job of explaining why the Earth and moon have very similar compositions because they originally were the same object. But the problem is those volatiles, that lack of water. That was the real big, big surprise when people brought back moon rocks was the absolute lack of water and hydrates. It just drove them nuts because that was just not what was expected. So it does pretty good for saying why it looks like mantle. Well, yeah, it was a chunk of the Earth's mantle, but the volatiles are all wrong, just all wrong. It's also really, really hard to do this, too. It's really hard to explain why the Earth would be spun up to near breakup speed. Well, the fourth model is the one that people would have said before the moon landings, you've got to be joking me, um, a giant impact. Yeah, let's make up a just-so story, huh, kids? Take a proto-Earth and a Mars-sized body. Mars is not that big. Mars-sized body happens to be in the same orbit of Earth and smack, hits it off-center. Blasts a huge chunk off the Earth. The moon then coalesces out of that debris 
and forms a little orbiting moon. Totally nuts. Totally crazy. Probably the right answer. And the reason it's the right answer is because it actually explains a lot of the basic properties. So this is the picture. A giant Mars-sized object whacks the Earth slightly off-center and kicks out a gigantic chunk. Whoops. Let's actually see a movie. I mean, why, why not bother with the movie of this? Now, come on. Of course you're going to be slow. Let's go. So here's a supercomputer simulation. A proto-Earth. We have an outer silicate mantle and an inner iron core. And then the impactor is also a differentiated body. It's got an iron core and a silicate mantle. So the iron and silicates have separated. And then it's about, it's about Mars size. Mars is about the third the size of the Earth. And it comes in and it smacks it. So you can see the iron cores in both. And it comes in and smacks it. Now you see the tides begin to distort the bodies as they get close and whack. Now, notice what happens. The heavier iron from the impactor stays in the mantle of the Earth. It sinks in. You've peeled the fruit from around the pit. What's left in the debris is the mantle of the impactor. Its iron has gone into the Earth plus bits of Earth mantle debris as well. That's where your iron went. The iron from the impactor went into the Earth, therefore leaving less residual iron in the impactor. But the proto-moon was formed out of debris, which is both from the mantle of the impactor plus those chunks of the mantle of the Earth that were knocked off. So, similar mantle composition, identical oxygen isotopes. Finally, that impact generated so much heat, it completely melted the proto-moon, and all the water vapor and volatiles just poof, blew off it because it was like taking the, taking the lid off a bottle of pop. And so you end up with a little tiny moon surrounding a just-formed Earth. So, yeah, it's crazy, but it has some strong points. The impactor's iron was in its core. The core gets trapped by the Earth and sinks into the Earth's mantle, raising the iron content of the Earth's mantle, but removing iron from the proto-moon. The molten past impact would boil off all the volatiles, so no more water. So when it solidified, those minerals solidified in the absence of water. That's why there's no hydrated minerals in the moon. Since it forms from mostly Earth mantle debris, and the, what mantle debris made it into the moon mixed, the isotopic abundances of oxygen are identical. It hits almost all the, all, all the points. There's still a lot of questions, but it's the best so far. This is not what you expect. A giant impact formed the moon. It seems like the wackiest explanation, but it's the one that matches most of the facts. It was a real wake-up call for people because it turns out that impacts are really, really important throughout the history of the solar system. So when we go around the solar system, keep your eyes open for the possible sign mark, signposts of very strong impacts determining something about the history of that world. There are going to be more of them than you expect. We'll see you at the test tomorrow.